Hello and welcome to the Think Wildlife podcast. I am Anish Panaji, the founder of Think Wildlife Foundation. We are a wildlife NGO run completely by college students with the aim of supporting alternative livelihood and conservation enterprise projects around India while also raising funds for wildlife rescue and rehabilitation. We launched this podcast in hopes to raise awareness about the various amazing conservation projects happening in and around India and the rest of the world. Today we have Stuart Chapman who is the lead for the Tiger Alive initiative of WWF. He has over 20 years of conservation experience and is currently on ambitious pursuit to see all 40 species of wild cats. Welcome Stuart to our podcast. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you. You are on a mission to see all 41 species of cats around the world. What sparked your interest in wild cats and encouraged you on this trip? Difficult to know exactly when it started, but certainly when I was a child, um, I had posters on my wall and that stayed from the age of five or six all the way up to 15 or 16. And the two the two cat posters that stayed throughout my childhood, one was a pair of cheetahs and one was a tiger swimming. And um, maybe that's why when I was a teenager, I, I didn't have a girlfriend because I had animal pictures on my wall. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's always been a, a childhood fascination. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's so I think that's where it's all started. What has been your most memorable sighting? Yeah, well, you know, I, as I creep up the in the list, so I've now seen 26 wild cat species out of 40, the, the 41st being um, domestic cats. So I guess that doesn't count. So um, uh, it's getting harder and harder. Um, you know, it's quite easy to get the first 10, maybe even 15, but then it gets really hard. You have to put a lot of time and effort uh, into it. Um, and because I live in Asia and I've lived here for 20 years, seeing a cat in Asia means more to me than seeing a rare wild cat in Europe or, or Africa. Because I've spent so much of my conservation career in Asia, I have a deeper appreciation of what it takes and the, and the relevance of the animal too. So... One that's been on my bucket list for near the top of my bucket list for at least 10 years was the Asian golden cat. And I did some research and found that Eagle Nest Wildlife Sanctuary in India was a place that they were quite frequently seen. I mean, I wouldn't say regularly, but frequently in terms of once a month, they would be reported by birders. Um, so I hired a guide, got the permission, and I went there in uh, in March. It's a spectacular place. Um, there's one road that goes through it, but it's a dead end. Um, and so this is the perfect place for, for cat spotting. Um, one of the things you have to do is cover a lot of ground. Um, there's no point walking because they will hear, see, smell you 10 minutes before you even get to that spot. So the best way is to be in a vehicle, so you don't, they can't see you, they can't smell you, and you cover a lot of ground quickly. Um, so so uh, anyway, we, we were driving one evening, and I will never forget it, because I nearly blew it. 
Um, and the spotter that was with me said, oh, look, eye shine, side of the road. And of course, we've got this eye shine. It was coming from deep within this sort of bamboo clump. And it was clearly sitting there or, or frozen. And we could see some reddish fur, but it could have been a barking deer. I mean, it could have been a munchak. So the key now is, can we see the facial features? And if you can see the face and it's red, then it has to be golden cat. So we got out the car because it wasn't moving. And for some reason, I was so excited, I didn't really sit down and focus on this spot where the face could be. I was moving to try and get a picture, moving to try and get a And I missed the moment where it moved and the guide said, I saw its face. And he said, so it's definitely a cat, but, I, but I've only seen a little piece of fur, it's red. So now I'm thinking, does it count? The guide said it was a cat. I've seen the fur, but I haven't seen the feature that would tell me it was a cat. I haven't actually seen the animal. I've just seen part of it. And and then it moved. It then it then crawled away, and it didn't come out the side where we hoped or forward. It went backwards. So I got in the car, and I was like, all my gremlins and demons were coming out saying, you blew it. You didn't see it. It was in front of you. You're going to have to wait another 10 years. Ah, it was awful, awful. And, of course, the guide was excited and was saying, yeah, I've, I've seen it, I've seen it. And I was just getting this big shadow coming over. I was like, oh, did I really, did I really, did I really fumble it? And so we were not, we were up, up on the, we were zigzagging down the mountain. And we'd probably spent 30 minutes there. And then something unbelievable happened. And I, it's, it hasn't happened before. It never happened since. Oh, I don't think it'll ever happen again. We turned the corner and the same cat had walked down the side of the mountain after we'd guessed we'd scared it off. And it stepped out onto the road two meters in front of me, in front of the car, just as we turned the corner. And it just stood there and it's magnificent, bright red golden beauty just stared at me. And the angels, if you believe that kind of stuff, started singing and oh my, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I got some terrible photo because I was again so excited. And it walked up and ran the car, it ran down the road and then ran off into the bushes. It was elated, elated. And and I think partly because I had been so low in that 10 minutes before it came out. And secondly, because I'd tried so many times to see it and failed, and I got a second chance. And that's pretty rare. Very often you get one chance. And with the rare stuff, I mean, sure, tigers, you just go to the park again and another time and you'll see it. But these rare beasts, you, you normally get one shot. So I was really lucky. I mean, even tigers are not that easy to see. Like, it took me about uh, 30 safaris to see my first tiger. Now I've seen a lot of tigers, but it took me like two years almost to see my first tiger. And I've been across India. So uh, right now, which species are you currently, currently looking for? So the second one, um, actually, there's, t there's, there's two on my list in Asia. 
that I haven't seen. Uh, the clouded leopard, and the clouded leopard was split into two spe separate species about 12 years ago. So there's the, the clouded leopard species found on Sumatra and Borneo, and I've seen that one. Um, but the mainland, which starts essentially from Malaysia and comes all the way up to here in Nepal, Bhutan, India, the, the mainland clouded leopard I haven't seen. I've I've done four, five trips, dedicated trips in the last two years here in the Himalayas to a place where they were meant they're meant to be. Yeah, it's been four or five weeks, and I have not seen it. And I, I'm I'm trying again in November. I'm going to is it Singalilia? How do you say yes, it? Yes, Singalilia National Park in that. Yeah, that's in, in the, yeah, yeah, near Jiling in, in Assam. That's meant to be a good place. So I, so I'm going to try there again. Um, so that's number one. The, the number two, I guess, would be Eurasian lynx. I and when I went to Ladakh earlier this year. Part of the reason I was going, other than being in Ladakh, which is probably my favorite place in Asia. Um, yeah, part of the reason I was going there was the chance of seeing lynx. Um, we didn't, and it's probably best to go in winter. And I've done the winter trip and seen snow leopard up in Hemis. Um, but um, yeah, so I'd like to see those two. But definitely clouded leopard is the top of the list. And is probably the hardest cat to see in Asia. I've now jinxed it, haven't I? No, it, it is the hardest cat. Like we've heard this from quite a few people who have seen a lot more cats than we have, than I have. But I've heard there have been sightings of Eurasian lynx uh, around uh, Hemis. What What are some challenges uh, you have faced uh, in this quest to see all the forty cats? Time and money. Uh, it, as it's getting harder, I need to spend more time. And of course, I I, I work. Um, and the second thing is, is the cost. It's an expensive hobby. Um, and so I obviously try and reduce the costs by traveling locally. So hence, I'm based in Kathmandu. So I've been up to Langtang National Park, which is very close, four times looking for it. Um, and I... I will cross into India, northern India particularly, to look for these animals. Um, but uh, if I want to see some of the cats that are burning a hole in my list, I have to travel much further. Um, and uh, so that becomes more expensive. So I have to, I just have to plan it. So I, yeah, don't, don't blow all my savings on this, on this quest. And and as you will know, or any of your listeners will know, that the moment in life you fix a target and say that target is, I, I, you know, I want to climb Everest, for example, then everything that you do, all the websites, the clothing you buy, the training, the people you talk to, it all leads you in that direction because that's the focus. And And since I identified my quest, which is to see all the wild cats of the world. Um, and I'm not sure if anyone's ever done it, but I don't think, I don't think many have. Um, it's led me in that direction. You know, the, again, websites I look at, the clothing I buy, the gear I buy, 
the time I spent planning these trips, um, it, it's all leading in that direction. So I'm actually, don't bump into me in a party. I'm really boring. That's all I want to talk about is um, wild cats or occasionally wildlife. And there's not many people like that, maybe in the places that I've been to. So, um, yeah, but if I find somebody who uh, who is interested, well, good luck, because you won't escape. Um, I, I'm just going to talk to you the whole night. What have you learned from this quest? Um, how rare these cats are and how persecuted they are. And the strange thing is, is that everywhere I go, the the animal that's persecuted takes on different dimensions. And what, what I mean is, is that, that if you go to South Africa, the animal that all the farmers want to kill is the caracal. And the caracal there would be, is now, you know, five, six times smaller than the leopard, right? Um, and then, you know, e even in, in Scotland, you know, so my ancestors are from Scotland, the, the wild cat population is basically extinct. So there's the only cat ever found other than the lynx there. The lynx has probably been gone four or 500 years. So even wild cat was persecuted and it's crime. Oh, it eats the game birds, eats the grouse or eats something that, that man doesn't want it to eat. And so it really isn't about size. And so you'd assume, well, it's hardest to live with tigers and, and uh, leopards. Well, of course, they're a danger to us. But actually, once they're gone, the next thing becomes a problem. It's then the next smallest thing. Then it becomes wolf. Then it becomes doll. Then it becomes whatever you, you name it. Go, we will just go down the food chain. And everywhere I've been, uh, and so I, I'm there looking for this cat's Supporting the wildlife economy, by the way. So spending time on guides and spending time in hotels, and I always talk about it, um, but trying to kind of, kind of get that balance for the wildlife. I will hear stories of, oh, yeah, yeah, the person down the road yeah, killed one recently. And I'll say, why? Well, and then there's a reason. Um, and so I just I just find that that, that persecution keeps these, these fascinating, beautiful creatures at very low numbers and, and it just means you have to spend more and more time to try and find them um but again anyone listening um you know support the wildlife economy do do it and and make and tell people you're doing it um and so locals know why you're there and uh, it becomes maybe a small reason not to kill something so in the bigger picture, why are wildcats so important in the conservation field? Um, I mean, if, if just looking at that, that sort of whole sort of food chain, for me, if I go into a place and the carnivores, so let's keep it at carnivores, if the, carn the large carnivores are present, so whether it's in the highlands, it could be wolf and uh, snow leopard, or in the lowlands, it could be tiger and doll, for example. If they are present in a landscape or a park, it tells me that the entire park or ecosystem is functioning and is intact. Because for those animals to survive, we know that they need to have X number of large body prey to survive, but also that they have a top-down effect, and they call it like the trophic cascade. So they're kind of the food cascade 
is controlled by that the presence of that animal. Um, and it will limit the numbers of certain species and, and keep everything in balance. The moment you remove that carnivore, um, whatever its size from the ecosystem, because it's either hunted out or disease or whatever it might be, the ecosystem breaks um, and it's no longer functioning as it was designed. And then you get too many wild pigs, too many rabbits, too many of something because too many, you know, if, yeah, um, because something's missing. And, and so one of the things I've learned is that when I see a functioning ecosystem, it not only sounds and looks different to one that's broken, um, but I feel different when I'm in it. I, I, I celebrate it and I enjoy it because there's not many places like it, unfortunately. Much of the conservation focus has revolved around charismatic larger cats like tigers, leopards, lions, but all the smaller species of cats somewhat get ignored. So what do you think can be done to help the smaller wild cats in terms of conservation? Yeah, I'm, I'm a supporter of both, actually. I'm a supporter of flagship species conservation. I think that as humans, we relate to a particular species for all sorts of reasons. It could be cultural, it could be the R factor, you know, they, they look uh, in someone's eyes to be appealing. Um, it could be for ecological reasons, but so these flagships are useful ways to get mass, mass public interested in conservation, whether it's tigers or gorillas or or snow leopards, whatever it might be. So I think that's a good entry point. Um, I, so that's that's one thing. And I think that everything that we know, of, of course, what we know about conservation, when we protect tigers in a, in a place or protect snow leopards, um, there's a cascade effect. Everything benefits. If you to, to protect tigers, that means you have to be uh, yeah, removing snares, stopping deforestation, et cetera, et cetera, and everything else benefits. You know, jungle cats benefit from that. Rusty spotted cats benefit from it. Dolls benefit. So we know that that there's a there's a there's a link. Um, but in terms of getting more public interest in a particular small cat, um, and uh, let's say the links, I think it depends on where you are. Um, in a country like India or Nepal, um, yeah, we're spoiled for choice. There are so many, there are so many flagships or potential species to focus on that that uh, yeah, it's it's quite difficult. But in other countries where um, this would be the top predator, and in most of Europe this would be the top feline predator having links, um, then it's much easier to then just focus on on that one species and say. We need to bring it back or we need to live with it. We need to tolerate it more because it's all that we have. So I think that that, yeah, that job of, of focusing on something small depends a lot um, about where you are and what are the other competing interests uh, that, that might distract your audience. Um, but I'll be, I'll be quite honest with you. I, I've, will equally spend time uh, looking for bats in bat caves, um, spend an hour staring at a tree looking for a particular squirrel. So I'm 
I'm, you know, not only cat crazy, I'm mammal mad, you know, so I, I, I will do all those things. So I'm probably not the best person to ask about because uh, I, I love them all. You are the leader of the WWF's Tiger Alive Initiative. So uh, could you just talk a bit about this program? Yeah. So, so the program um, started about 14 years ago when tiger populations were at all-time low. Maybe there were only 3,000 animals in 2009. Um, and there was a coming together of uh, tiger conservationists, donors, world leaders or Asian leaders that came together in a, in a, a conference um, in Russia and agreed that um, efforts needed to be doubled to protect tigers, which also included doubling the tiger population to try to get to 6,000 animals by today, by 2022, by the next year of the tiger, which is this 12-year cycle. Um, and so WF's program has um, had a dedicated team trying to improve the conservation conditions for tigers, trying to support countries um, that have tigers, trying to support fundraising, technical support, uh, being a sort of a communications hub in terms of celebrating when things are going well and and putting the spotlight on things when things aren't going so well. Um, and uh, it's been leading up to this moment, this this now, this year of the tiger, uh, 2022. And so today, um, uh, you may have seen about, uh, I guess about three months ago, the IUCN red list came out and said there are now approximately, and now we're saying 4,500 tigers, so no longer 3,200. So certainly more tigers than there were uh, 12 years ago. Um, and there's been a new estimate that came out of Nepal, which nearly tripled, nearly tripled its tigers over the 12-year period. We're expecting more results from India. Um, that announcement will probably happen next year. And that... that um, trajectory continues to go up. Um, Russia just said at making an announcement that it had around 700 tigers. So that's an increase from what they've previously said. So when you start adding up all these figures, we're going to get very close to 6,000. I mean, the, certainly the upper limit, you know, and everything has a range, right? There's a lower estimate, there's an upper estimate, and then the somewhere in the middle is the mean, right? So there's a bit of, bit of guesswork going on. But um, we're going to get very close to that figure of 6,000, that aspirational figure of 6,000. Um, and I think it shows that when you get that alignment of, of um, political, public, donor, NGO interest in a particular cause, um, it is possible to, as we say, you know, bend the curve upwards, i.e. populations are going down. And then what you want is recovery, which means then the curve or the numbers of those animals start to increase. So I think that's been a, a model that's certainly been copied for snow leopards. And and I would say anybody who, who wants to achieve single species conservation for all the right reasons, this is a good model to follow. It uh, seems like the 2X, TX2 uh, campaign has been quite a success. So recently, the second International Tiger Forum was hosted in Ulati, Vostok. What are the outcomes of this conference and what are your opinions about the results from this? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, a lot changed uh, earlier this year with the uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine. And so the event that was held in Russia um, wasn't of the same scale that we had been hoping for for the last 12 years. Um, 
And so Tigers, unfortunately, didn't get their big moment in the spotlight. Um, that isn't to say it can't happen within the year of the Tiger. We still have until, I think, January the 21st. Um, so there could be another event that's, um, that's, uh, that's hosted by government. Um, but look, this is just one of those realities. Like COVID, COVID changed everything. Uh, there were certain things that we were planning to do that we couldn't do because of COVID um, and similarly um, uh, because of the conflict. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that Tigers will have another event and that that will be in the next few months. Um, there are rumours about certain countries hosting that event, but certainly for Tiger conservation, um, we should have another event to agree on the next 12-year plan. Um, the TX2 or T Tigers Times 2 um, was the kind of rallying call for the last 12 years. Um, and we need to identify what the next rallying call is um, uh, to inspire conservationists, governments and donors to, to continue to support tiger conservation. That's great. So uh, my final question for you is that what are some ways which the public can help a wildcat conservation? Oh, become a fanatic. Um, and go and look for your feelid friends in the wild um, and, uh, uh, yeah, start your own list. Um, because the more people who are talking about it um, and doing it, uh, the more those who are living with these cats recognise that there's a value greater alive than dead. Um, if you can't get to a... To a cat uh, forest or grassland near you, join a, a conservation NGO that does conservation work. Lots to choose from, local NGOs, international NGOs that do great cat conservation work. Then join those and be an armchair supporter. And you can be a cat fanatic or cat crazy like me, sitting in your armchair and watching Nat Geo and, and uh, supporting one of these organizations. Um, and but maybe cats aren't your thing, um, in which case maybe primates are, maybe birds are. Um, find that entry point to the natural world and be obsessed with it. I think we, we need more, more obsessions, more hobbies um, uh, that are linked to the natural world. And so this is a way of, of connecting. Um, for, for all my frustration when I don't see the cat species I want to see, um, I'm, I'm out there. Um, in nature and I'm seeing lots of other things that I also celebrate including just being there being in the wild somewhere and, and hoping that I that I see yeah the, the I guess the trophy species that I'm really looking for but I get so much more out of it um, and if I don't see it I always go back I always try again so um, yeah so I would say make make cats or, or conservation your hobby and or uh, and and um, join an NGO. Thank you so much uh, for that. That was a very inspiring answer and thank you for your time. Thank you.